0: Hello and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotsbeach. Today's episode of the Millennial Ag podcast is brought to you by Ziway Brand Fungicides by FMC.
1: Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode. happy valentine's day too i know it's a couple days late but it is valentine's day this week um and so hope there's some love in the air whether it's with your significant other with some friends with even your animal um i have a cute story i'm going to share because i can't resist but i got a puppy last week um and his puppy mate um got delivered to um one of our good family friends and their little girl's And the wife had no idea a puppy was coming and it happened to be delivered on Valentine's Day. So dad got a text that her name is now Maggie and she was the best Valentine's gift ever. So anyway, positivity (laughs) before we dive in. Love it. So, but without further ado, we do have a guest, a very special guest with us this week. um, Dr. Kelly Wilson from the Center of Regenerative Agriculture, um, the University of Missouri is here with us to dive into regenerative ag and, and touch on some of the social aspects as well on regenerative ag. So before further ado, Kelly, thank you for joining us. And if you would tell listeners a little bit about you and a little bit about your background, that'd be awesome.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I kind of have a diverse background when it comes to agriculture. I was born and raised in sub Saharan Africa. I moved around every three to four years, um, and then came to the U S. and got a, a degree originally in anthropology. Um, and got really I started farming on, in the summers. You know, kind of a the thing to do in the summers, and and got really interested in community food systems, and then. I went and did Peace Corps uh, in Niger and then Madagascar. And that has continued working with farmers in sub-Saharan Africa for a long time. So much sm- smaller scale kind of integrated farming systems. And then I eventually was told I need to get a master's degree if I ever want to make any money and support my livelihood. <laughs> um, and so I came and I got a master's degree at the University of California, Davis. And there I'm studying international ag development, but I really started to learn how research could um, could be an important component slash like partner in um, in in creating like solutions to the huge problems we have in food insecurity and 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 to just some of the issues we have in our agriculture systems generally. So I ended up getting a PhD at OS, Ohio State University, the Ohio State University, excuse me, um, in <laughs> in uh, in agriculture extension communications, um, and since then I've kind of continued to work in both. Sub-Saharan Africa, so in very development, developing countries context, as well as in the U.S. And now I'm really working with farmers in Missouri to kind of catalyze these regenerative practices and outcomes um, to make more resilient food systems, you know, and at the same time make uh, solid livelihoods and communities within our rural, peri, peri-rural, peri-urban and urban settings.
0: Very good. Well, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you. Um, we're continuing our series on regenerative ag. And as Valine mentioned in her intro, um, we'll, we'll talk especially about the social aspect of regenerative ag, which we haven't um, really covered before. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say. But first off, do you want to give us an overview of what um, the, regener- the Center for Regenerative Ag does and sort of what your mission is?
2: Mm, Yeah, Um, so we were launched, we launched just, um, I guess, I keep saying just, it's now longer and longer, but um, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we launched, I guess, January in 2021, and out of the University of Missouri, we're the third university center that is focused on regenerative agriculture, and we're really working to really catalyze collaborations in research. So really focused on interdisciplinary research, which is really important to me. So that monitoring and evaluation piece, which is really important for regenerative ag, um, as well as like a, we're a resource across audiences. So we have all these resources for, um, you know, it's whether you're a farmer, a farm advisor, an extension researcher or consumer, we have all these resources both on our website. And we um, we do a lot of like educational events through through our center as well. Um yeah, and then that that second, that third piece is kind of the events So we do conferences and, and just trying to create partnerships to bring people together to think about, yeah, solutions to creating more resilient systems.
1: So you kind of touched on it, but going back to the very, very basics, what's your definition of regeneration?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no. I won't I won't do it. I won't do it. I so I'm actually doing a study right now. Um, I've been talking to farmers, private companies, uh, researchers and nonprofits across the U.S. to like to see like what the differences are in definitions. And So I've talked to like General Mills, Cargill, um, Bayer, along with like farmers who have been major players in the game and really trying to ask them what they think it is. And they're very different, first of all. Um, but so I won't I won't give you a, a solid definition because I just don't believe it's out there. But I do think it's important that we come towards one because buzzwords are, in in definition, just a passing trend. And so, if this is a real, if this is something we really care about, if this is something that we're really reckoning with, then it is something that we need to come towards. But I I don't I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> I'm sorry to be a little
1: ambiguous, but uh, I won't do it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and I think that's why Catherine and I wanted to dive into regenerative regenerative ag right there is because you get the cargills and their definition of regenerative you get the the you know urban farmer regenerative ag you get the beef side you get the dairy side you get the row crop like it's so diverse yeah. across agriculture that it's not a one size fits all approach yeah.
2: I don't yeah I'll say that like so especially I, I'm gleaning a lot from talking to all these different stakeholders but um something that is like really prominent especially because I work with a lot of conventional farmers um here in Missouri in the Midwest generally and something that like folks who are kind of doing more that are already kind of on board the early adopters as we say um they say you know the thing that's different about regenerative agriculture is that it's a big tent and it's not this like narrowed thing that past slash present ag and food movements have done where they kind of like shame I, I think kind of like put farmers in a place that they're, they're on the defensive. But regenerative agriculture, I think, has this opportunity to be more inclusive and, and to be more context driven. So it's not like everyone do this practice, but like here are the things that we're aiming towards to create systems that are gonna be regenerative to like continue to grow instead of just, instead of a road, which you know is happening. And, um, and so those, that to me is where the opportunity lies, is, is that big tent. If that
0: makes sense, I think that makes sense. It's a it's a good place to kind of start um, developing a definition, I think. And if it's a big tent, it's probably going to be a fairly broad definition. But um, that doesn't mean that we can't all have our own little, um, you know, parts of it that that are um, pertinent to what we're doing on our own yeah. operations.
2: I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, something that is, quote, unquote, regenerative in Missouri is going to be very different. You guys are in Colorado. Where are you guys? At? Yeah, Colorado. It's going to be very different there because it's different climate. It's going to be, you know, a different system, management system, culture, everything that goes into these things. Um, but we can still aim towards things that are, you know, enhancing rather than deteriorating our environments, our social systems, everything, rather than even if there are different ways to get at it.
0: Yeah. So you just mentioned social systems there. Let's tell us what you mean when you talk about the social aspect of regenerative agriculture. Dive deep into that, because as we said, that's yeah. not something that we've even heard of before.
2: Yeah, I actually think this is like the second like opportunity of regenerative agriculture is that we're starting to reckon with the fact that agriculture is not just a, uh, it's not, when we're talking about agriculture, we're not just talking about plants or animals. We're also talking about the people who work with those plants and animals um, and so to me ignoring the social system and the people who are around it is is, is a myth is really you know ignoring a big part of what we're talking about um and so when I think about it I think about how do you make um how do you like create systems that are economically pro- still prosperous for farmers right it's still going to make sense for the pocketbook um also you know we see a lot of uh rural communities especially in the U.S. if we're we're talking about the United States you know we see a lot of people moving out of rural communities that's been happening for a long long time right and it's already we're already at that point where rural communities are really emptied out because of the way that our farms have gone from like a lot of farms to less farms and so that like there's a loss of this like community resiliency um and like uh, there's like a word I'm, I'm trying to think of, like like the dynamic sense of community within those rural areas. That it's not because the people aren't dynamic; it's just because of like the the way that labor has shifted. If that makes any sense. Um, and so, I, when I think about it, I think about all the things that go into first of all, like adopting practices that that could be lead to regenerative outcomes. So. Um, the risk aversion, the decision making, what goes into that manage, those management decisions. And those are from like farm management decisions. Um, and there's a lot of things that impact that from culture to economics to social norms.
1: So, you know, you de- you described what kind of the social aspect of it, how, what changes are being made or what are Solutions to to some of that, and how do we how do we start moving that direction?
2: Yeah. So um, you know, there's several. So I, last Tuesday there was a big announcement from our Secretary uh, of Agriculture. He, actually, Lincoln University is very exciting for Missouri um, about like this hu- this huge funding from USDA that's going to be towards like commodity farmers, but really incentivizing creating ways to incentivize trans uh, transitioning towards regenerative practices. Um, and so I think incentives is, is an important thing because, um, you know, it's really hard for farmers and very understandably so to like transition. There's a risk aversion. is not just because people like don't want to do things. Sometimes it's also because like economically, it's hard to see that path forward. And so there's like a lot of incentive programs that are, that have existed and now we hope that more will be created. Um, It sounds like more will be created that will help farmers do that transition piece into just adopting, whether it's cover crops, whether it's um, minimizing tillage or creating buffer strips, you know, Um, there's more incentives in place that are literally will pay farmers to try out these practices. And that is a good, I think that's a good way to kind of get over some of these pumps um, that, you know, are challenging it's that first step that's really hard. You know, it's not because farmers necessarily don't want to do it. It's, it's like these, all these factors coming into play.
0: Well, and I, oh, go ahead. Kathy. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> We're going to pause here for just a, a minute to hear from our episode sponsor.
3: Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active Ingredient Flutriophol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Zyway brand fungicide success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions.
1: So I wonder, too, if, you know, we see Catherine and I work a lot in the beef and dairy segment specifically, but some of these, these practices we're talking about, We're finally seeing a shift towards them more because somebody's actually done it. They can look at their neighbor and say, oh, I see that they've started installing, say, a digester and that's, you know, or uh, those buffer strips. And they're seeing those positive impacts. It's but it's taking having somebody have the courage to take that first step so that the community follows. Yeah. Are you seeing some of that too in, in the practices you're working in? It's a little
2: hard to say. Um, the like farmers that are the, as we say, early adopters, um, are so convinced and it's amazing talking to them because they, and I'm talking about like in this area, um, they are like, there is even like it's not even an economic issue anymore. Like we like and they're not even, I'm not, they're not organic they're not certified organic, they're not certified anything. There's like economically, like this is better for us. Like this is like and that, you know, we don't have the research evidence to prove that yet, but like that's pretty anecdotally interesting. Um I do think it's important to like see like yeah, to be able to see these things. And I think there's ways to do it in in, in better better ways potentially but I don't think depending on where you are here necessarily that like it's happening because there's all these like politi- politics tied into everything and people are resistant for all these different reasons
0: <laughs> what are what are some of those other reasons that people are resistant
2: well I mean one is just like habit or i not uh, like what you're used to doing and, and it's actually interesting because like cover crops actually in Missouri folks say like the farmers I've been talking to you recently they're saying like you know their grandparents did cover crops and like stopped doing them have you heard this too mm-hmm. I see you not yeah yeah and and uh stopped doing them and then when the like younger generation wanted to do them they're like we tried that you know so <laughs> that's kind of an interesting thing um so and that speaks to experience right which is very valid reason to not want to do something very very understandable um I think there's ever I don't know I, I it, there's a resistance to um wanting to I I don't know I, I'm struggling a little bit to like think to like really articulate this but um there's there's some resistance just to wanting to get out of the systems that we're in because currently the systems are working okay, you know? Mm -hmm. Although that said, I think farmers are seeing, I mean, they're definitely seeing the extreme climatic events happening and they're seeing that the soil erosion and the loss of topsoil. So there's something of a reckoning happening, but I, I don't know if it's necessarily like across conventional farmers yet.
1: No, that makes that makes sense, and I I think it's it it's a but regenerative ag right now is a buzzword, so I think some people are digging their heel, you know, like let me see what actually happens, and and see you know is this like I think most farmers and ranchers and agriculture are regenerative in their own way because they want it to continue production, but they're not adapting maybe these these newer or reactivated practices um because they yeah. don't know how they're going to work yet but.
2: right and i think that risk aversion is like very important and and it makes a lot of sense you know it costs a lot of money to try something new it's probably not going to work in the first year um and that makes it a lot harder you know especially when you're already down to the line um as many farmer many farmers are prosperous, but also like, no, they're very, I feel like farmers are excellent business like managers, you know, they know all the aspects of their business. And so it's hard to make those changes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I really want to know about farming in sub-Saharan Africa and what that's like and, and what you've learned there versus the United States as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so
2: to start off, you know, like a lot of the, I'm working with small, when I work in sub-Saharan Africa, so for example, I worked in Madagascar a long time with rice farmers. Um, and it is a big issue that like, they're called subsistence farmers, but oftentimes you're not actually able to grow enough food to subsist on, even though that's what the idea suggests. Um, so food insecurity is a big issue. And the whole purpose of agriculture development that we do it, is to try and improve production. So that's we. I'll, I'll say that first. Um, but that also said, you know, when I like it was a B score. When I'm working with smaller farmers, you know, I'm, you're living in like a rural community, no electricity or anything. Everyone's a farmer, and uh, and but they're much more integrated systems, and it's what you know we we had here in the 19 early 1900s. You know, there's chickens running around because not because it's that's the product going to market necessarily but it's something to bring into the home to cook from right so you're subsisting off those things you're growing as well as selling um, and so not to make African countries sound antiquated because they're not at all but you know that's more the scale that we're working with there um, yeah and so there's like you know very multi-dimensional you know everyone has some fruit trees has, everyone has like the rice crop in Madagascar for example is the main crop and then there's livestock running around and and chickens that you're also also are contributing to your household livelihoods.
1: So do they import additional food or are most of that what they eat off the land down there?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And yes, they're in, like rice, for example, Madagascar is one of those places like Thailand, like a lot of um, that area that um, literally eats rice three times a day and they can't grow enough, even though really so many there are so many rice farmers so they're importing a ton of it and so we're just the scale of which we in the U.S. are able to produce is very different than there how
0: does I guess how does that kind of work color your 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 work now and what you're doing how has it impacted what you're doing
2: yeah that's a really lovely question um So I don't think that they are the, like, I think these systems are very different. And I think that um, there's different systems in place in the U S to both support farmers and support consumers that don't exist in, in a lot of the countries I'm working with in Africa, like um, just like, you know, you know, I'm sure, you know, about all the subsidies in, in agriculture that we have here or the policies we have in agriculture here, they just don't necessarily exist there. And so there's no, um, for example, crop insurance, if you if you have a bad year, you know, you're just totally screwed out of your whole crop. Um, and so that makes risk aversion even higher. And so I think about risk aversion, I take it very seriously because of that. Because I know, like, if, if a farmer, so like, I work a lot with women, women and chickens in across different countries in, in Africa. And, you know, there, there are ways to like, in a a way, easily move into a more uh, semi-intensified, like like uh, producing more chickens, right? To sell more. But that risk aversion is so real because of the money that goes into it, because of all the infrastructure that goes into it. And so, and and the cultural and social norms around um, the production systems. And so I take risk aversion really seriously because of that. And I understand why farmers like hesitate when it comes to trying something new. Um, and so I really understand that and what me yeah,
1: and don't ever blame farmers for it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, And when, when your livelihood, yeah, it depends on your little chicken herd or yeah. flock, I guess, or whatever you call yeah. it. Um, and, and disease is real and stuff like that. And it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't take much to wipe it out. Um, how, um, what's, I guess, the biggest risk you see down in, in, in those countries versus, you know, the United States as well?
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So it definitely depends on where you are, because Africa is so big. And like, if, so I'm working in Burkina Faso, and that's like the sub-Saharan, that's like Sahara, so that's like desert, right? And there's also, there's like a lot of more man-made, there's a lot more terrorism there. So working with farmers there it's like well you can do this development project there you can train farmers to learn about innovations learn about inputs but then terrorists might come in and literally the roads are blocked or literally sorry i, I don't know if i'm going too far into this, uh, no, this is literally great. like um like uh, like there's areas in in upper nigeria and in burkina faso where terrorist groups will come in and say you know say the farmers if you don't join us then you are not allowed to farm anything. And if you farm anything, we'll kill your whole family. Like, this is, I'm sorry, this is so in a different direction. But, like, there's always like serious risks, you know, like that farmers are put into play. And so, I do think the vulnerability is really different um, than here. I think, yeah, I mean, the risks are, are greater. Taking the risk to adopt new, new, um, new ideas, new innovations are greater, um, especially because. They're more vulnerable to, I mean, definitely climate, you know, but also these man-made um, conflicts and, and issues that are really, you know, they're the, that's the number one reason for food insecurity in the world is, is, is man-made conflict. I'm laughing, but I'm not laughing. It's like <laughs> terrible. <laughs>
0: Awful. Well, that's, that's an interesting fact I, I didn't realize that that was the number one reason for food insecurity i mean i know yeah. that we produce enough calories in the world to be able to oh feed yeah world,
2: but yeah we yeah. grow enough food that's not the issue you know but we've seen like since 2016 food insecurity has continued to rise and then covid really hit every you know like everyone covid hit all the supply chains everything and and that just like deepened food insecurity um and so like the Conglomeration, or if that's a word, of uh, of man-made conflict plus climate plus you know uh, disease is really not a great thing for
1: food security across the world. Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's a great time for us in the United States too to to reflect on the blessings we have and the fact that we've never been hungry, you know, and at least my lifetime, I've never been hungry or had to question where, where my next meal comes from. Um, and so, you know, the fact that my family can do what we love and are passionate about without feeling that terrorism come down, you know, I think makes me want to find more ways to be regenerative in our own ways to pass, to keep the family business alive and to keep it, so we can enjoy, enjoy it too. Yeah. I mean, I'll put, I'll push
2: back just slightly in that, like that we have a lot of food insecurity in the U S to deal with. Um, And, you know, depending on all of our experiences and identities that changes where we grow. But something I will say that you really bring me up brought brought into my mind is um, I was recently talking to a farmer, Will Harris, and in, he is this amazing farmer who's been doing, you know, what we now would call regenerative agriculture, but been doing along the way, all these amazing regenerative things. And he was telling me how it was kind of by accident that by accident on purpose, but like, you know, they wanted, they needed to bring in more labor eventually more people to employ. And so they started employing more people and they were like, well, we can't just, we're not going to be able to recruit pe- good people if we don't have anything for them to do in this like rural I think, oh, Georgia, Georgia, I'm pretty sure it's where they're, this rural Georgian town. So we need to like figure out what, how to draw people in. And so they've since like created this restaurant, created like all these things. And the the town itself has like boomed and it's really cool to see that like, yeah, just this like boom of energy within, around regenerative practices and regenerative farming because of that. And I think that's really key. Is like, we need to think about the people who are gonna support our food and ag systems. And it's not just agri- it's not just farming, it's also like the processing plants. How do we make those towns, you know, there's a lot of resettled refugees coming in um, or have been coming in. How do we make those towns like great places to live? You know, um, there's a lot of mental health issues in those areas. So how do we kind of create that kind of dynamic situation and, and really like boost rural or farming communities, you know? And I love like hearing about your families. like, how do you carry on like the thing that you love with your family to do? And how do you make that a thing that your kids want to do? You know, not just have to do. Does that makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I
0: think, yeah. I think that's an important part to, to consider too. Is it, is this something that the next generation would want to do? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a question that gets asked very often. Um, yeah making sure that the operation even if it has to pivot in some sort of way uh, to to be able to continue the legacy
2: yeah and we like the average age of a farmer is what like 65 I I was just reading a thing of us like Mm -hmm. in the U.S. the average age of a farmer is like 65 or something right and -hmm. there's this concern that we're not addressing about yeah how do we make ag cool again I guess (laughs) And there's a boom, a little bit, right? There's people like, I think us, that are excited about it, uh, whether we come from farming backgrounds or not, but how do we really invest in that, in that like next generation of farmers and, and along the value chain as well?
1: Well, and it, like you said, it starts, I mean, the communities are an important part and it's all across, yeah. it's all across that value chain too. It's not just somebody working the land like that's super important we need to recruit more people to work the land but you can still be in agriculture and not be necessarily boots on the ground totally makes sense
2: totally agree yeah I really agree with that and it's worth investing in
1: yes absolutely well Kelly we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to to chat with us and dive into just a little bit. I know this is just a sliver in your day-to-day life. Um, but do you have any parting thoughts for listeners? Um, and then where can, where can they find more information or find you if they have questions?
2: Cool. Yeah. So, um, I guess just like, I think it's really exciting this moment where we could potentially reckon with, um, with trying to create more resilient food systems. So, um, I hope folks will check us out and also just, Try and figure out the best ways to do that in a way that's transparent and collaborative, rather than just in our own little bubbles. Um, and please check us out at Center for Regenerative Agriculture, University of Missouri. I don't know if should I send you a li- I can send you a link or whatever. Yep, we and we can uh, put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I'd love, I'd love, you know, if you guys want to talk more about other stuff at some point, love to be a part of. I think it's cool what you're doing with podcast, and uh, yeah, definitely reach out anytime.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Kelly, for um, joining us. And we thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email us at talktosatmillennialag.com. Until next week, we are Millennial Ag. This episode was brought to you by...
3: Changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis, about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Xiway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented, season-long, inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions.